They say that the book is always better than the movie. However, what happens when a famed author, a famed director, and a decent cast take a book lauded by medieval scholars and try to recreate the magic of the written word? Well, it's on this show, so what do you think? But seriously, we're here to tell you that Timeline is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, great, and B, movies. And every now and then, someone mentions a movie, and I take a look at it and go, I've never seen this film, I didn't know it existed, I'm all in, I'm going to watch it. And every now and then, those movies turn to be pretty darn good. And that is the case this week, because we are talking about timeline and here to join me on the show making his long long return from the coneheads episode drew from the attitude era wrestling review podcast you're welcome back to the show how are you doing man i'm doing great thanks for having me it has been a while Mm-hmm. appreciate the return invite we will not have to maintain low tones on this one here <laughs> but- nerf Narf. We will we will garfle the Narthok here. Uh, but Drew, what is it about Timeline that made you want to pitch this film? Uh, it's bad reputation. I think it's garnered over the last 20 years of being just a box office critical and, and critical flop. I don't think it deserves the nasty things a lot of people have said about it. I have fond... I'll, I'll be honest. I watched this probably two or three times when it came out i had it on dvd i haven't watched this in probably 16 17 years until i just finished it like uh 40 minutes ago well i finished the second half we watched the other half last night but we finished it me and the wife and the two kids all watched it and i just yeah i all the nostalgia came back from all those years ago i just i love this movie before we get into this film, though, and before we trailerize it, I'm going to put this question out on Front Street because this film is actually based on the Michael Crichton book, Timeline, which, of course, also had a video game based on that book that didn't get the best reviews. So I'm going to ask you, of the three properties here, the book, the video game, and the movie, uh, how many of the three have you watched, read, or played? Well, obviously... Watched the movie multiple times. Um, I want to read the book. I like Crichton's. His writing is so much different than the movies, especially if you've seen Jurassic. I think we've all seen Jurassic Park. And if you've ever read the novels, you're like, whoa, that's really different. But I really want to read the novel of this and compare it now. And as for video game, you just blew my mind, didn't know it existed. Now I'm going to go out and look for it, even though it's terrible apparently well it was created by idos interactive so perhaps there's a version out there quite possibly um but now that we know that now that i've broken your brain here we're gonna take this film based on a michael Crichton book and trailerize it a group of archaeologists with no fighting skill no survival skills and barely any coping skills Travel back in time to the 14th century, where they'll have to fight, survive, and cope with the reality of being in the middle of a war 
between the English and French. Paul Walker, Francis O'Connor, and Gerard Butler star in Timeline, a movie that takes the Michael Crichton source material and Richard Donner visuals and takes a studio interference-sized dump on all of it. It's as if the studio had a team bonding LARP weekend and decided to film it for inter-office communication. The only thing more implausible is how we're supposed to believe Paul Walker's American accent is related to Billy Connolly's Scottish. Timeline! Rated PG-13 for Paul and Gerard's 1300s excellent adventure. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's a lot to unpack out of this one here. So let, let me give you a brief description of what's going on in this film. And by the way, uh, spoilers like a mofo for this one here. Uh, so you have a bunch of archaeologists who discover a letter that's written by the disappeared father of Paul Walker, of course, played by Billy Connolly. They find a way to actually go back in time to try and find him. And it's not exactly the best of time. It's right in the middle of the 100 years war. But let's get into who is actually in this film. The movie stars Paul Walker, Gerard Butler, Francis O'Connor, Billy Connolly, David Thewlis. And I apologize if I mess up any of these names. I, idiot Canadian in a basement with a microphone. Anna Friel, Neil McDonough, Ethan Embry, and Michael Sheen. However, there's an almost starring in this one. In the role of Andre Merrick, as played by Gerard Butler, originally offered the role was Pierce Brosnan, but he turned the role down. And I'm not going to lie, I think they got the better actor for the role of Merrick. But can you see Pierce Brosnan in that role? I, I can't. I honest to God cannot see Pierce Brosnan pulling this off. I was, I was, I saw that and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm really glad we dodged that bullet because that would have, I mean, that's such an important role. And I've just never seen, I've never seen a movie where Pierce Brosnan, I'm not saying he's a bad actor, definitely not. I've just not seen a movie where he's had to perform that type of, emotional connection to a love interest i mean he's he's been bond where there's oh you're there cool bang done see next move nope you're not in the next movie but i've never (laughs) seen him i've never seen him in a part where he's had an an emotional connection like this movie has which could have been fleshed out a little better but yeah whatever I mean, I'll be honest, I think there is actually room for Brosnan in this film, but Merrick is not the role that he should be uh, in at all. I'll completely agree with that one there. The movie, of course, is directed by Richard Donner, and he should be used to this. The studio interfered a lot with this film, apparently went through a number of recuts. It is, of course, based on the Michael Crichton book timeline. There is, and I, I I had to point this out here, there's actually a song on the soundtrack, according to IMDb. The song is called Just a Little Bad by Vicky Ray Jordan. That kind of sums up the movie. It's not all the way bad. It's just, just a little, just a little bit bad here. And that showed in the budget, which had $80 million. And when it comes to the box office, a $19 million domestic take and worldwide just shy 
of $44 million. So didn't even make back, you, if you count you know, the, the marketing budget, it, it probably made about half of that money back. When it was released on the November 26th, 2003, Thanksgiving Day, five-day weekend. So the numbers I'm giving you right now are for a five-day stretch, not your typical regular weekend here. Timeline debuted at number eight with almost $12.5 million. It was the lowest of four debuting films in wide release that weekend. The top grossing number one film of the week was the debut of The Haunted Mansion, which brought in $34 million. Bad Santa debuted at number five with $16.8 million. And just ahead of timeline was The Missing, debuting with $15.2 million. And if you told me that a Richard Donner-directed Michael Crichton book adaptation would only finish eighth on opening weekend on a long opening weekend. I, I I'd be shocked if you, if you said that was actually going to happen. That's insane that haunted mansion made $30 million. Oh yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> and the funny thing is, it's not even like they released it in October. Like in October, that would have made sense, but this was like, you know, you know, this is American Thanksgiving. So you're getting close to Christmas. Haunted Mansion, maybe not the movie you should be putting out at that time, but it kind of worked, apparently. Just to let you know, like the rest of the top eight, Cat in the Hat in its second week was at number two. There's another movie that we'll have to talk about eventually someday. Elf. Not it blue. <laughs> Elf was number uh, three in its fourth week with almost... Uh, 31 million and that's the thing the top three films each grossed over 30 million that weekend uh so there's a lot of money out there gothica in its second week was number four and the third week of master and commander the far side of the world was at number six so that's a lot of money in the theaters not a lot of it going to timeline i'm i'm, I'm shocked at this i really am kind of shocked yeah i don't i'm trying to think back i don't remember this movie like I don't remember the marketing. For, I don't remember seeing like a trailer or a commercial or anything back then. And yeah, it, it kind of got buried. It felt like, and like the fact that I had never even heard of the film when you mentioned it, like what? Yeah. I was shocked. I mean, I'm the, yeah. Cause I remember you said, you asked, you reached out and says, or anything, you know, that would fit the criteria. And I was just glancing through the list of, bad movies and i saw this one i'm like wait a minute this is i remember this being a good movie Mm -hmm. well i remember this being a fun movie and i'm thinking this has got jason's podcast written all over it right and i told you about it and i'm like it's got billy Connolly, paul walker and based off the the guy that wrote jurassic park and you're like what never and you never heard of it and i was like Okay, maybe this is just like one of those little niche films that I remember that nobody else does. And I looked at it, I'm like, no, this was a big studio movie put out with a budget. And uh, like you said, a, a pretty decent cast. I mean, for 2003, it's, I mean, if you look, Paul Walker definitely goes on to bigger things. Gerard Butler definitely goes on to bigger things. Billy Connolly is, I mean, he's Billy Connolly. He's 
probably the honestly the biggest name in this movie at the time. Well, well, keep in mind too, like this this is post like the first you know Fast and Furious film. So Paul Walker is a big star at this point, and Gerard Butler is, you know, this is still pre three hundred Gerard Butler, but it's still like he's there. Oh, this would yeah, this would be past the first Fast and Furious. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Okay. And then we've got the biggest surprise to me that I do not remember him being in this movie. And then I'm like, oh, that's the professor from Harry Potter playing the bad guy. Well, one of the bad guys. <laughs> one of, yes. Well, one of the bad guys. And I'm thinking, did not remember him being in this movie. But I think I'm going to guess you said Pierce Brosnan would have been better in a different role. I would have probably put him in that one. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, don't get me wrong. David Thewlis was was really, really good in this one here. But oh, yeah. But regardless of who did well in these roles and who was actually in it, the critics did not like it. And that's why we're here over at Metacritic. This film has a meta score of twenty nine over Rotten Tomatoes. Clearly, you're in the audience side of this because forty five percent audience score the tomatometer for a Michael Crichton based film 13 percent for a richard donner directed film how i i i cannot understand how it's that low is this the greatest movie ever no is it a good movie Mm, good maybe not is it a really fun two hours you damn right it is. So 13%, what is wrong with those people? Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. And that's the thing. Like, and maybe it's because, you know, I take a look at Richard Donner, you know, someone like Richard Donner, you know, whose filmography is, you know, beyond reproach. Um, and, and you sit there and go, how? how? Just how? As a director, how, 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 right? But then you, you, you scroll back and you take a look and all of a sudden you realize, and maybe it's, it's just one of the things where I hold like Superman and Superman two in kind of high regard. And I recognize that there was, you know, a a lot to do with Superman two, where it's like, there's the Donner cut and then there's the, the studio cut. So hence he's used to the studios here. But when you realize that, you know, once you get past, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, and The Boys, and The Goonies, and Lady Hawk, and movies like that, that's when you sit there and go, oh, wait, but there's also The Toy, and you've got Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight, I mean, the executive producer, you've got Assassins, you have, you know, um, Any Given Sunday, which actually does qualify, again, executive producer on that one here, but director, you, you've got this, you've got 16 Blocks, like... You have him as an exec producer on X-Men Origins Wolverine. Um, So while he wasn't always in the director's chair, there's a lot of films of his that do qualify. And it's making me question if the critics know that they're actually talking about Richard Donner. And again, maybe it's just, you know, I hold him in high regard for the movies that he put out early. And I, I kind of erase the fact that he's involved in some movies that we would be talking about somewhere down the road. Yeah, his he has a heck of a catalog. He's got his ups and he's got his downs. He's 
it seems like it's either one or the other. It's either really good movie or it's not so. But let me ask you this one because this one has been, I've been thinking of this since I first started this movie. This is 20 some years old and we only got two hours and I think they had to cram a lot into two hours. What if we took the book and turned it into a miniseries or a television show? Oh, as a series, this would be phenomenal. But the funny thing is, and Michael Crichton himself came out and said he hated the adaptation of this movie to the point of, you know, he refused to have his properties sold anymore, like getting, or selling the movie rights until Spielberg got his hands on Pirate Latitude. So there, there, there is that. But yes, I could absolutely see if a, a company... Um, say like a an HBO or a Netflix or a Pri- I think Prime, given what they've done with the Wheel of Time, I think that Prime may be the best outlet for something like this. But I could see it as a series, absolutely. I think it'd be great. I think it would be. I mean, you could really flesh out a lot of the both sides, present and past. I think you flesh out a lot more of it, and it'd be a lot more two-dimensional characters instead of just kind of a one-dimensional every character in this movie is one-dimensional they have one thing and that's it pretty much mm-hmm. but i think if you gave it a series and had time you could really start to flesh that out and i say that i don't say that as a bad thing every character serves their purpose there's not a whole lot of superfluous that's pronounce that right i think so you that's the american pronunciation okay <laughs> Not of unneeded characters. Everybody's there's, I think there's room for probably more if you flesh it out. But even as a, I got to swing back because I, I could go on this for a while writing the movie, writing the show. But as a movie, it's it is a lot thrown in the two hours, mm-hmm. and sometimes your brain gets jumbled up on some things. I think this is one that takes a second to rewatch to go, oh, well, because then you've got the whole time travel aspect of it. Like, well, if they did this in the past, wouldn't it have already happened? And if they dug the thing further down to begin with, would they have known to begin with? Or, you know, that whole grandfather paradox. But, and we're not, we haven't even talked about yet the big twist in this movie. Oh, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. My, my wife, she went, because when that happened, I'm not, do, I, I know it's 20 years old, but are we going to spoil it or what? I don't remember your policies. Oh, spoil away. We, we, we've warned everyone, you know, that if, if you are listening to this podcast at this point, you have taken it upon yourself and accepted the fact that you've either already watched this or you have zero desire to watch this and you just want to listen to us pontificate about a film. So either way, okay. you know, from here on in, you're on your own. Okay. So when he's in the battle in the end and he gets his ear chopped off and he goes, it's me, it's it's me. I look at my wife's got this look on her face going, huh? And I said, I said, the um, coffin they or sarcophagus they found in the beginning. She's like, oh yeah, that's him. Like, Boom, mind blown. Like, it's not like Sixth Sense big twist, but it's kind of a big twist 
where you realize, oh, he's not going back. Mm-hmm. So then, will, will anybody else go back? And it's, I mean. Is it a butterfly it, effect thing? Like that? that's mm-hmm. one of those questions. Yeah. And the thing is, the way I take a look at wishing a book or a movie were a series, it's not necessarily that you're saying that the movie wasn't exactly fleshed out. It's just that there are so many other characters in the story that you want to learn more about, but there just isn't the room to learn about all the side characters. And I think this is definitely the kind of story and kind of property that there are side characters that I do want to know more about. Uh, But let's get into the breakdown here. We're going to go through this actor by actor here and, and, part of film by part of film but we got to start with paul walker who plays chris johnson the top billing of the film how was paul walker in this for you bland boring and phoned it in i do not like him in this role and i say that as somebody that i think he had better roles than this but he couldn't to me, he couldn't figure out, he couldn't, I don't know how to want to put this now. I can hear it in my head. He couldn't decide whether he wanted to be aloof goofball or serious, I need to get my dad back. And it was kind of one in the beginning and then kind of shifted over when they go back to the other. But I feel like he always just was too... Oh, bro, dude, uh, 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 kind of through the movie, even though it was really serious what was happening around him. I don't think his character ever gave off that, oh, we're in real trouble here. Yeah. If that makes some sense. It's almost like Paul Walker kind of point breaked his way through this role. And, and you're trying to sell me that this, you know, that, that Paul Walker is Billy Connolly's son in this. No, I, I, I don't buy it. But I'm so glad that you said that, that he, to me, Chris is not necessary. His entire raison d'etre is be Billy Connolly's son and be Kate's potential suitor who probably isn't really, you know, in her league kind of thing because that's pretty much why he's there. Be the oh, son. Oh, you cut him out of the movie and it oh, changes yeah. nothing. Oh, no absolutely. plot, no plot point changes one bit if you cut him out of the movie. Yeah, you you could have Professor Johnson, is played by Billy Connolly, basically be Kate and Andre's mentor. And that's their reason for wanting to to rescue him from the past. You don't need to shoehorn in a son who I don't even know why he's there. I mean, yes, he likes Kate. Um, Kate is very smart and headstrong and driven. And yeah, like he is a tad ineffectual in this film. And, and, and I feel bad kind of saying that since we were talking about the late Paul Walker, but we're just talking about this character. There's not much to the character in the writing in this. I'm kind of wondering, I had, like I said, haven't read the book. Is he in the book or was this a character shoehorned in by the studio? Because we need a name. We don't know who this Gerard Butler is yet. We don't think he can carry the movie. 
Yeah, no, it's it's one of those things, and I I haven't read the book yet, and it'd be one of those things where I do like actually going back and reading the book, and you know, just wondering um, exactly how it compares and and if things actually make sense. Um, but it is in the book, Professor Edward Johnston, of course, is uh, as played by Billy Connolly, and yes, Chris is in the book. So okay. yeah, the character exists for a reason, but how important he is to the story in the book we're not quite sure okay, again haven't read the story is he important in the movie probably not as much as the execs would wish i i get paul walker's a big star at the time because of fast and the furious ineffectual in this role who's not ineffectual is francis o'connor who plays kate erickson i liked her in this role but what were your thoughts i all right, first off, when I saw this 20-some years ago, I'm not going to lie, giant, giant crush. That's probably why I watched the movie multiple times. Pretty, pretty lady. Um, and, But as acting and her part in the, in the movie, I've got to be honest, loved it. think she knocked it, not so much out of the park, but really held down her part because they easily, easily could have just made her the standard damsel in distress i know kind of claire ends up in that role sort of but having kate think of this one this is another thing bringing back to why i didn't like paul walker in this movie and this is not so much an acting but the way they wrote the movie when they're in trouble it's kate that pulls out the badass moves and kills the guard not chris and I really like that choice of whether that was in the script or director change or whatever it was. Whoever said Kate's going to be a badass and she's going to kill the guy and get him out of it and then wonder about the moral implications later. That that scene to me where she's like, I killed a guy and she's got like blood and bruises on her hands and I'm like, that is a really important scene that probably is not going to get thought of too much. Because that really shows that, you know, she can do it, but she doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. But she's she has the ability to probably survive throughout this. I don't think um, Chris had that. Had that. If she wasn't there, he'd be barbecue and chopped up, and who knows what all by now. No, it's it, it really is like Chris is almost the quote unquote damsel in distress in this. But the nice thing about Kate in this is that yes, when it comes to archeology, span she is knowledgeable. She does her job. Well, like there's no questioning her archeology span knowledge as far as a character goes. Um, but when it comes to, you know, escaping out of the, the little, you know, pseudo jail room that they're in, in this, you know, you know, straw roof kind of house and she's the one that's climbing up on it it's not like she's all of a sudden freaking black widow and and doing all these action moves and like killing no 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 she's getting by she does enough she's she's fit because she's an archaeologist and she goes on all these digs but it's not like she's mary suing her way through everything she's not excellent at everything and you see her trying to process the things that she has just done but not in a 
frantic kind of emotional breakdown kind of way. I I think Kate Erickson is a very strongly written character in this, and they nailed they nailed the casting. Francis O'Connor was so good. Yeah, I I agree. I I'm really glad that they wrote her as a strong willed. And the scene where she realizes she's the one that destroys the the painting, and then you know she's so happy and emotional and then they get to the top and realize it's a dead end and just the exact opposite. It was just well acted and like you said, perfect casting. I think she did a really great job in this part. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they, they took her character and then all of a sudden had like the Englishman go, Ooh, Hey, I kind of like you. You're very pretty. I'm going to kidnap you. And then the boys have to save her. No, it's, She's not the damsel in distress. It's not that she's sexualized or like put up on some kind of hot girl pedestal kind of thing. Kate is a pro. She's a professional when it comes to archaeology. She is reasonable and rational. Like I again, like smart character building. And I think because Kate is such a strong character, I think that also emphasizes just how ineffectual Chris is beside her. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. He's, he's second to me in this. He's second build. He should be second build to her because this is really her, her story. I mean, not really her story, but she takes charge way more than he does. Mm Mm-hmm. In all honesty, probably third billing because you also have Gerard Butler who plays Andre Merrick in this. And Merrick is also a very good character. And again, I'm so glad that they got Gerard Butler for this instead of Pierce Brosnan. I think Brosnan, while I like him in certain roles, I also agree that Brosnan is probably not the the, the Merrick character that you need. But how was uh, this very young Gerard Butler for you? I... I liked it. He he hasn't came into his... You could tell he's not really... I don't think he was comfortable with the action scenes as much as he will be later in like 300 or the Yada Yada Has Fallen movies. I love those. I know they're just probably could be on this podcast, some of them, but I still like them. But his acting is the scene that gets me that I think really shows how kind of diverse his character is in this movie because he starts off like, all right, I can swing a sword. I know history, yada, yada, yada. Then they go to the past and he's like, Oh crap. This is a lot more serious than what I realized. And, but you know, got to try to stay alive. And then the scene that really, I think that shows his range as an actor is the, the floating down the river scene between him and Claire where he's trying to say, um, are you seeing anybody? No, don't see anybody. I, I can't do accents, so I'm not going to try French. <laughs> because I don't even know what I just did there. Um, and he's like, we're speaking two different languages, or the same language, but you don't understand a thing I'm saying. And just his you know, laughing that he likes this girl, and he wants to tell her, but... And it's not that he has a problem telling her, apparently. It's just that he physically or can't do it because of a language barrier. 
and not even really a language barrier. It's just a um, kind of the idioms we use in modern day compared to back then, which is kind of funny to me. But I think that scene, her, I mean, she didn't have a whole lot to say at that point other than, oh, no, I mean, just, you know, could be confused. But him, the way he laughs and kind of is frustrated but knows there's not a whole lot he can do about it. And then when he realizes who she is when they get back, they're like, oh, I just done, I done, I, I did a bad thing. And that's the thing. I'm really glad that you mentioned the, the floating down the river scene because I love the but chemistry. I like this girl. So. Right? Oh, no, go ahead. The chemistry between Merrick and Claire in this, it's so much better than the chemistry between Kate and Chris. Uh, it, it, and again, a, another one of those things that makes Chris a much more ineffectual character. And I, I find it kind of funny because like, this is the movie where Anna Friel, who plays Claire, um, ended up getting together with um, David Thewlis uh, as Robert Doniger. And they ended up getting married uh, <laughs> after this film. So, um, you know, it was, but the, the chemistry between the two, and, and it is, it's a cute scene. It really is a cute scene. It's not overt. It's, it's a very, innocent and you're you're right and how the the language difference between the 14th century and our time the you know the 21st century you know you're looking at people who do speak diff- the same language but different language entirely you know i'm sure any 14th century you know english or french who are listening to this podcast right now going what the hell are they talking about but um it is it's a great scene Gerard Butler is great in this. And yes, it's another one of the situations where he's not perfect. You know, he has all this book knowledge, but it's very different when you're in the middle of it. And I think he played that part to perfection as well. Totally agree. I I, I think he knocked the part out of the park. Because when I first, I'm like, oh yeah, I mean, he's not that great of an actor, I don't think. But we'll see how he does. Then I'm like, you know what? Maybe maybe he's better than what I give him credit for. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But since we've been talking about her, let's talk about Anna Friel, who plays Lady Claire in this. And I think the fact that she's not royalty at this point, right? So Merrick knows what Claire becomes and the the whole line of Lady Claire. I like the sound of that, right? And she plays someone who's not in charge and but and not, you know, as held up as as royalty as Merrick has this vision of, but yet you can see she's kind of on the precipice of that. And the fact that he knows her story, at least he thinks he knows her story, at least part of it. Um, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic for Claire in this. Yeah. When it comes to her in this movie, I think that she wasn't given enough to really portray the character that I, the way I would have liked to have seen. Honestly, I think she comes off sometimes as stiff and like a, and wooden. I think this part especially would be the one that would benefit the most from like a series or spread out or just more because we get, I mean, the floating down the river scene's cute. She's pretty, but Merrick's known her for, five hours and he's ready to, you know what? I'm not coming back to the future. I I think the thing is, it's not that he knew her for five hours, but he knows her story. And I think that's the intriguing part because, you know, here is someone who, you know, discovers the, you know, the crypt and looks into the story and reads up on her. And, and the more you research, something or someone the more you feel like you get to know them and then all of a sudden oh by the way this is the person that you've been studying for for that long so i i I do get it and of course it's one of those in the heat of the moment kind of things but it's it's i i I like her story and yes i agree i don't know if she's the the character that i think would would benefit the best from the series there's another character in this movie that i think i really wanted to know more about beyond the surface level introduction we'll get to that one a little bit though but i i do agree that 
fleshing her character out and expanding on the Merrick fascination with Claire. Not infatuation, but fascination. I think that's what really would benefit that relationship building. That's yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll probably talk about it later. The fact that this whole relationship throws in a giant massive plot hole, but we'll get there later. <laughs> Billy Connolly, uh, as professor Johnston, the, uh, the the supervising professor, I guess, on the archaeological dig that ends up back in time. It felt to me that his disappearance kind of felt glossed over. And maybe it's because I was watching this movie at night kind of thing. But all of a sudden he's there and then all of a sudden he's not. And then all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's this company. And then they send you back in time to find him kind of thing. Um, I like Billy Connolly and I liked him in the role. But it felt like the role... if. It, it, he disappeared for the sake of moving the plot forward. On my notes, I have three words written under his character. Not enough screen time. Mm-hmm. He needed to be there more. If not, just to flesh out the, why we should care about him or other than the fact, oh, he's, he's got this kid's dad, yada, yada, yada. He can be a little bit of something I think this movie lacked just a little bit of, I'm not talking a lot, but just a little tiny bit of, I think this movie needed just a tiny bit occasionally some kind of comic relief. And Billy Connolly can fill that role in his sleep. Oh, Billy Connolly is comic relief. You know, like when, when you think about some, you know, some of the roles that he's taken on and of course his com- his stand-up comedy, like Billy Connolly is great. Uh, and more Billy Connolly is always good. And I think, that's the other thing, too, is that they went back in time to find Chris's father. And we don't care about Chris because of the way he's written, which makes me also care less about them retrieving his father, even though I liked, I think Billy Connolly was perfectly cast in the role. Yeah, I I agree. I, I love Billy Connolly. I'm not going to lie. I'm not sure there's ever been in anything where I said, you know, that was a bad thing. He did. He did. He did a bad job. I mean, he's in one. He's in one of my absolute favorite movies and one of my absolute favorite roles, just because of the absurdity of it, and it makes me laugh in a not funny movie. And that's the role of in Boondock Saints. Just makes me laugh mm. that they cast Billy Connolly in that. <laughs> it's not like his part's not funny. It's just the fact that. That's Billy Connolly. Why? Well, who who in casting thought this is who we need? Let's get the funny man to play this straight. I mean, it's one of those that you don't see coming, but, oh, but I love Billy I love Billy Connolly. But he's brilliant in that movie. He's oh, he so is. brilliant. Absolutely. But the I think everybody when he first pops out of was it pops out of the van the first time. Goes, <laughs> that's Billy Con. Oh, he means business. <laughs> Billy Connolly's and- not f-ing around this time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a firefight. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Now, now we're getting into the Willem Dafoe, and and the funny thing is, I think Boondock Saints actually qualifies for this show. Like it's, I'm surprised. No, I think it does. No, it's- it better not. I will get legitimately angry and say bad, bad words. 
<laughs> There's no way. Okay, are you ready for your bad words? Boondock Saints, 26% tomatometer. Son of a bitch. Well, that's double this movie. Right? How? Right? How? 26%? Well, now that be it, Dano. The, I'll be uh, back. The audience score is 91% on that one. So, okay. Yes. Yeah. The, the, see, the audience is smart. And yes, we will definitely do an episode on Boondong Saints because you're right. Billy Connolly's not f-ing around in that film. <laughs> oh, God. Although that being said, I, I want I want to shuffle the deck on this movie because I think with one actor swap, you can make this a better film by making Chris at least more realistic in the role. Okay, so follow me out here. You're going to have to recast Lord Oliver, but if you had Michael Sheen as Billy Connolly's son, I think it would have worked better. It would have been at least more a more believable um, familial connection between Sheen and and Connolly as opposed to between Paul Walker and Connolly. I can see that. Yeah, let's see. Okay, yeah, my Lord. Okay, he was Laura. Okay, the bad English dude. Yes. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, but then you lose Michael Sheen in that Lord Oliver role. Okay. What about, what if we take, okay, let's lose Paul Walker. Sorry, Paul, but let's lose Paul Walker. What if we, okay, Billy Connolly's a little older. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not a young, he's not a young kid. So why he doesn't need to have a 20-something-year-old kid. Let's say he has a 30-something, late 30-year-old kid. Neil McDonough, or however you say his name. The, the problem, What if we cast him as the son? I know the, he's a little older. Which... I, I I don't hate it. I I think it's the accent. I really think it's the accent that that's that's losing me here. And if you put Neil McDonough in that role, you again have a very American accent playing off against you know Billy Connolly, and that's why I think sure. Martin Sheen. While yes, he's Welsh uh, as opposed to to Scottish. Uh, I'm sure he could be, at least get close enough. But since you mentioned Neil McDonough who played Frank Gordon in this. Um, One must ask, is there a single movie out there where Neil McDonough's character is not just straight up sus? Uh, Band of Brothers. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, I mean, that he's playing a historical representation, so I'll take that one out. Yeah. Um, uh, Yellowstone? Uh, Definitely. Um, Arrow, definitely. Uh, yes. Game Over Man, definitely. Um, I it, it's one of those things where Star Trek, yeah, like it's it's one of those things where you, some actors get typecast. You know, you think about Michael Ironside. You no one is putting Michael Ironside in a rom com unless they are the person <laughs> trying to break up. <laughs> You're trying to picture it now, aren't you? <laughs> no, I just I just in my head I want Michael Ironside and um. Billy Connolly in a rom com. Yes, they're not. I don't care around. what parts. <laughs> I don't care what parts they play. I just want Michael Ironside <laughs> and Billy Connolly in some kind of rom com. Oh, yes, God. Oh, we're 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 gonna break people listening to this, aren't we? But the thing is, the fact that Neil McDonough 
is not the main bad guy. This is what he does very, very well, is that he plays a great side nemesis. And we talked about this in uh, Game Over Man a few episodes back, uh, that, that Netflix comedy. And it's one of those things where he's a great red herring as far as being the the guy you think is completely sus, but he's only just, you know, slightly bad. Not all the way bad, but kind of slightly bad. You know, he's mostly bad. Um, but when you when you realize that he's trying to help them survive because he knows that he needs their help to get out of the predicament that they're in, but he has no problem leaving them behind. Um, and when he, and again, spoilers, you know, when he gets his comeuppance and he, you know, finds, you know, meets his demise, you're like, yep, he had it coming because he'd done someone wrong real bad. So it, it, I love, I love his character. I, I do wish that Frank Gordon was flushed out a bit more than um, special operative designed to bring people back. Which he did not do very well. Oh, I didn't say he was good at his job, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Neil McDonough to me is just one of the, I would put him easily as a top 10 actor in Hollywood, like in the last 10 years. There's not a part I don't think he can he can't play. But like you said, he always plays the red hair. He plays the red herring very, very well. Mm-hmm. But he can be mean, but he can make you like him all at the same time. Like, I know he screwed up and did some, like he left, uh, what was his name? Um, Sir, oh, Will, Sir William Decker or William Decker. Decker, Decker, that was it. Yeah, he left him. But, you know, if... I'm there, and we're getting attacked. There's a guy with three arrows in him. That guy might already be gone. (laughs) So I can't really blame him for that one. Mm -hmm. Now, the one on this trip where he runs off and just tries to screw everybody over, yeah, that's kind of being a douche there, dude. But Mm -hmm. even at the end when he starts saying, I have a family, you've been to my house, thinking, ooh, this is... I kind of feel bad for him in a way. I mean, he's in a really bad predicament, and he's just he's scared. I mean, what would what would you do at that point? But then when Decker goes, I had one too, and you left me here. And the whole, you knew how bad you know, going back this many times when you're not going to tell them this, you know, how dangerous it could be. So, yeah. I think it helps that um, Gordon is not, necessarily portrayed as professional military you know he's working for this company he's he's not a he's not a soldier right it's it's he's not of the you know no man left behind kind of mentality he's for hire not necessarily a mercenary but he's definitely not a professional soldier so i think that kind of adds to it i will say it was a little hard getting used to him with not the uh, much more bleach hairdo that he normally sports these days, but uh, I, I always do like when he's when he's on the screen. We talked about him there just recently. William Decker is played by Martin Saucus, and this is where I think a series would do this property justice because I wanted to know more about William Decker aside from you know guy who Frank Gordon screwed over. There's a there's a fascinating story in there. Like I want to know what Decker had to do to survive when once he was left behind. Yeah, like, 
when he's there and this guy's got three arrows in him. So apparently somebody shot at him. I'm assuming maybe the French, since they were spoke, probably speaking English, and like, all right, we're just going to shoot you. But what, yeah, what did he have to do to get not only not only survive, but get to a point where he is a knight? I mean, I know he's he's had to have been some kind of I'm like. Um, like Gordon, you know, not really military, but, you know, have some skills. So, yeah, that, like, I, I don't know what to say because, like you said, we need to see more of it. Exactly what all to do. Maybe it's in the book, but I would still like to see it on screen. Yeah. And I, there are a lot of differences in the book. Like, in the movie, they can only go back to that certain time at Castle Guard in 1357, whereas in the book, uh, they have the ability to send people to different parts of time. So they've kind of narrowed down the whole uh, wormhole trajectory in the movie, and obviously for storytelling's sake. But, yeah, this is where I think of a film version of this story with a more... I don't want to say full Game of Thrones feel to it, but you could have a bit more of that serious tone and let some of these backstories and side stories um, grow and be flushed out. And I like I would absolutely go for a flashback episode of, of William Decker and, you know, being left behind and what he had to do to survive. Like, I want that story. That's a that's an intriguing story. We just did. It was boiled down to about three sentences, and that's that's not good for the character. Uh, totally agree. That was when you said earlier there was the one that you wanted to see. You know what happened? I knew where you were going because I, I thought the exact same thing. We need to know more about what happened with this guy. Mm-hmm. Michael but, Sheen, who played Lord Oliver, and we already talked about him a little bit, and maybe you know cast swapping him here but i like michael sheen in this it's it's a much more subtle performance than what people are probably used to if you're you know you're watching a movie like tron legacy or if you're watching prodigal son um like he's brilliant in this in a much more subdued role and i think that you know it's not like he's a sadistic army captain it's not like he's torturing people he's doing what he must do for for queen and country um i i I don't think he enjoys it but i also don't think he dislikes it um and there's a there's a, a subtle charm to him as well it's it's not like he's gone like full joker he's not completely you know bad crazy he's a proper english general in this army and trying to win the war or at least the skirmishes against the french and it's not like he's losing his mind it's not he's doing his best to keep calm when faced with the with the trebuchets of the french like michael sheen did very well in this i did i did like him in this part and i'm actually scrolling right now i don't think i've ever seen him any in anything other than this Oh no! Four episodes of Thirty Rock. So that and this is all I know. Yes, him from. where he played Wesley Snipes. Because when you hear the name <laughs> Wesley Snipes, are you going to picture the actor or a, a pale Englishman? It's the yep. pale Englishman, Wesley Snipes. Uh 
freaking Michael Sheen. By the way, if you want to see Michael Sheen, and I, I realize we have spent about almost a hundred episodes standing the st- the show staged, but if you have not seen staged by this point, you must go watch staged. It is Michael Sheen and David Tennant in the only production aside from the bubble that the pandemic ever created that will stand the test of time. That show is priceless. And but the thing is, I like Michael Sheen as an actor. I, as soon as I saw him on screen, I'm like, oh, it's about to get good. And it was, but but not in the crazy way. And I think that was well played in a, in a smart acting choice there. One last thought. If this would have been an over-the-top bad guy, it would have completely ruined the movie. Mm-hmm. There, there's a class to the acting in this. It's... It's smartly directed from a from a from a cast perspective there. Like, aside from and, and and again, I'm not gonna blame Paul Walker on this, but but it's because Chris isn't flushed out and really not necessary in the grand scheme of things. But really the entire cast in this I felt was properly cast and properly directed. And I think Chris could have been better had they given Chris more to do other than, you know, pine over his missing father and swoon over Kate. But let's go further into time, the present day, if you will, and deal with Ethan Embry, who was, uh, played Josh Stern, the guy who stayed behind in the present while everyone else went to the past. Um, I liked him in this because he was you know, the, the, the driving factor in making sure that his friends got back. But he also was the embodiment of the uncertainty and the fear of going back in time. Yes, I, I, I've seen him in something, and I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. I'm not going to scroll through and try to figure it out, but I like him in this. I think he's he plays that part of the. He's smart. He gets what's going on very quickly, but he's you know worried about his friends. And he's like, I'm not going to take your crap. And we're going to get them back. Stop trying to cover your butt. We've got people back here that need saved. And I think he does a very good job at that. And it's another one of those, if he would have been cast as just the hysterical, if this would have been the comic comic relief in the movie, again, doesn't work, where he's just like the hysterical, oh, we got to get my friends back. Well, you know, typical, you know, like that. I think it's terrible, but his down-to-earth kind of approach to this role where he was able to show, you know, I'm worried, I'm I'm afraid, I'm angry, but I'm not going to, you know, go hulk on the whole place. I think that was a very good, again, director, either director or who actor choice, whoever it was, to do that, and I think it turned that part of the story, a.k.a. the present, into something, because that present, those present scenes didn't have to be, they could have been so bad that you could cut them out and who cares? Just suddenly they get back and, oh, okay, they're back. But the acting with basically those three actors, um, Professor, can't think of his name, and the other guy who was also really good in his role. And I think they were all three playing off each other. So opposite, 
that it gelled together perfectly, if that makes sense. Well, just talking about Ethan Embry here, uh, just just listen to this list of films, and uh, at least one of them we've talked about on the show, because that was Empire Records, where he played Mark. He was TV player or the bass player in That Thing You Do. Uh, he was Russ in Vegas That's Vacation. Can't Hardly Wait, Disturbing Behavior, uh, Sweet Home Alabama, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. Like, there are so many films that he has been in, like, and in each one, like, many of his films don't qualify, you know, so that just tells you that clearly the the side characters do very, very, very well. Um, but then, of course, you also have David Thewlis, who here's the big bad, right? Here's the guy you don't want to succeed because he's putting the company over the people. And the fact that it, to him, preserving the science over or supersedes preserving the lives in in the in, you know hanging in the balance here and i i think it was a very well played bad guy because he's not he's not out to purposely hurt people he's doing his best to save the company and the people working under him so it's it's a complicated villain role yeah i think and he knocks it completely out of the park he he's stuck in a bad situation and he makes a choice and it's the immoral wrong choice from our point of view, but I mean, he had everything riding on this and he just chose poorly. <laughs> so now, now we're getting, now we're getting our uh, last crusade vibes here. Uh, one thing I want to point out in this film is that it's an $80 million budget and when you take a look at them going back into time, into 1357, at times it it did, it felt a little LARPy, if you will. Uh, LARP standing for live action role play. Um, it, it felt like a renaissance fair at times. And I don't know if that came across to you, but it didn't feel as rich a production as a Richard Donner film should feel like. And again, I'm probably putting him probably too high up on a pedestal, but that's what it comes across to me. There's a weight of expectation when you see Richard Donner in the credits. Yeah, especially the, what came to me that looked, for no other lack of word, cheap, was the, not the castle, but where they were first held, the little village town that they ended up burning down. That looked like somebody found a field somewhere and said, all right, here's 80 bucks. Build me some huts. <laughs> um, and that's what they got. Yeah. I mean, you're right. The 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 castle scene itself, I will say, um, felt, or at least reminded me a little bit of um, The Last of the Mohicans. When uh, they, they they bring the, the the two daughters to the castle in the middle of the fight with the French, um, it felt like that part to me, and that part did feel good. But yeah, like during the day when they're caught and when they show up in like the the woods, it felt a little budget to me. Yeah, the ca- especially the castle fight scene. I think this movie is, I mean, if not a series, prime for a remake. Because that castle scene is, for no other terms to say it, that's the Battle of Helm's Deep from Wish. Mm-hmm. 
and it, it had the potential of being so much more because we were told in the beginning, oh, there was a a French army and an English army, and they fought, and it was this really awesome battle. And I'm like, there's like 40 dudes over here, 40 dudes over here. Yes, that probably may be historically accurate, not real sure, but this is Hollywood. Hollywood the hell out of this thing. I want to see 500 Frenchmen storming a castle, not 40, not 40 guys. Mm-hmm. It's just, meh. Now, keep in mind, too, they they did film this in Macouche, Quebec, uh, up here in Canada. So, uh, A, apologize for my French, uh, but B, this, of course, according to IMDb. But, yeah, obviously, in 2003, the Canadian dollar was at a sense that, or at least at a level, that it made it actually cheaper for American films to film up here. Um and yes, we're talking 2003 and you don't necessarily have the CGI technology in order to be able to take 40 men and make them look like 40,000. So I, I do, I get that. Um, but you take a look at a film like Braveheart and Braveheart never felt small in scale and you still had these open field battles. This felt LARPy and I do, I, I want better for this story because I think if you had the right setting and you had the right number of extras and and scale I think that's what it is it's scale and it's missing that scale all right I'm going to argue one point that you just said and I know it's not probably not within the budget but they totally had the ability to use CGI to make it look like a giant battle because the two towers came out a year before this so the technology's there, just it costs an absolute book more than they were going to give this movie. Well, as I was say, when you have an, only an $80 million budget, no, you don't have the budget for the CGI in order to be able to pull that off. <laughs> and and I get you you don't want to put in something or at least force something in that's not going to stand the test of time. In a movie like, yes, The Two Towers, you know, that stands the test of time. You know, you take a look at another Michael Crichton property, Jurassic Park. You watch it today and it still feels <sighs> oh, so real given what they, still what they did. Yeah. The best effects. It's the best the best effects in a movie, the way it's used, I will say in probably it's probably number two. And I'm honestly gonna say number one's gonna be Jaws. Because just because of the way they had to use Jaws, because it wouldn't work, so they had to like not show you. So I think that's the best use of what you had. Mm. But this, I think, could have been that last battle could have been so epic. And another thing I wanted to see more of, I wanted to see the French get their butts handed to them before they found the tunnel and then turned the tide, because it just seemed like the French were never in the position to lose. They always, there was never the, oh, we're in peril. Oh, here comes the guys through the tunnel. Oh, oh, now let's go. It's, oh, they shot some night arrows. Some of us died. Retreat. Mm -hmm. Oh, so we're losing. Oh, look, Merrick blew it up. Let's go. It just never seemed, that moment of drama was just never there for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, even when they were like going to hang the girl, it's still like I'm not seeing it. 
the level of peril definitely felt a little bit lacking. I'm glad you mentioned Jaws. Uh, by the way, for any, any of you who are movie buffs, uh, if you go to YouTube and look up The Cutting Edge, it's a phenomenal documentary on film editing and editors. And uh, there's there's an interview with Spielberg in that documentary where he's talking about Werner Fields, who was the editor on Jaws, and how they would constantly go back and forth when they were in the, the, the cutting room for that film. And Werner Fields would always try to put less shark in, and Spielberg would try to put more shark in because, of course, he spent so much time out on the boat. But the thing is, you know, A, trust your editor, because... In this case, you were right, because the shark didn't work as well, um, the less of the shark you saw, the more realistic it felt. And just trust your editors. Just trust your editors. Okay, Drew, it has come time. So now, you got to lay it all on the line. Who is your MVP of 2003's, and I can't believe this movie's already 20 years old, timeline? MVP is, I'm going to give it to... I'm going to have to go with probably. I want to go co, but I, I'm not going to ride the fence. I'm going to, I'm going to pick one and I'm going to say, I'm going to give it to Kate. I think Kate holds this movie down. I think she did a great job. She wasn't the damsel in distress that she easily could have been for a early two thousands leading lady. And I'm just happy to see that she kicked some butt. She, I mean, as weird as this is to say, I'm glad she killed some dudes and was able to escape and get back. I mean, Gerard Butler is a strong candidate, too, could easily be number two. But I'm going to have to give it to good old Kate there. Francis O'Connor is not around in timeline. Uh, it is. It's. It, you're right. Francis O'Connor did play this well, and it reminds me of a film that we talked about in a few episodes back, The Relic. Uh, again, another film based on uh, a popular book by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, which kind of veers away from the the source material just as much as this book book did. Um, and in that movie, Penelope Ann Miller is a very, very smart, strong. Um, female protagonist, and yes, I think Frances O'Connor is equivalent to that as well. So you can see there's this you know, smart stretch of good films with strong female protagonists, but as much as I like Frances O'Connor in this, I actually ended up going with Gerard Butler because I felt that his was... While Kate is a very strong character, and I think she's very well played, I think Merrick is the character that I found most interesting and the most the, the person you want to see discover themselves in the film. Kate seems on a mission just to find the professor, but Merrick is the one who seems more on a, a quest to find himself. And I found that angle more fascinating than uh, Kate's feats of daring do in this. Yeah, like I said, I could I could have went either way, and I don't think you'd go wrong either way. I just, like I said, she's also a very pretty lady. Maybe that has a little bit to do with it. Ah, uh, we'll 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 attack that one on there. That's okay. Um, okay, Drew, thank you so much. Before we go, please let oh, our listeners know where. Hold on, hold on. Can we can we tackle one last thing if we got just a few more minutes? Yep, because I teased it earlier. The giant plot hole in this movie. <laughs> All right, I love this movie. I'm not going to lie, but it has a big one, and it has to do with how does time travel work? Is it all predetermined, or can we go back and change it? Because the beginning, we're told about this 
massive French battle where, or battle between the French and the English where they hang the girl and the French get all mad and they storm the castle and kill the English. But we're also shown a coffin with a one-eared man in it next to a girl. So did they go back and change that and, or did it already, it's, See, I'm confusing myself. Does that make sense? See where I'm coming from? It, it reminds me of that <laughs> line from Infinity War. And when Stark first meets Thanos and, uh, you, know, you know, it's like, you've heard of me? And you have to wonder how time kind of bent around that moment because, of course, they had to go back to the past. So, yes, it would make sense. But then Thanos was also snapped out of existence. So does he remember Iron Man years later? It, it, it is. It's a little on the confusing side. But I think in this case, it kind of makes sense because, of course, they go back far enough in time that you have to think that... um the past because it's him it also explains maybe why he found the story so interesting maybe he had maybe there were stories or we felt some kind of connection i i, I don't see th- this one being as much of a question mark as the how does thanos know stark kind of question but i i can see how it's a little you, know, you gotta wrap your well, head wrap your head around a few things well if they know the story as she hung, you know, she was hung and they went, but he's, they already went back and changed that. I don't know. That's just, my mind can't wrap, must can't get wrap around that for some reason. Because well, if I mean, they've already went back and done it since they've, the glasses are there, the notes there, the bodies in the tomb, she should, they shouldn't know the story of her being hung because it never happened. Unless it happened <laughs> after everyone else went back because of course you know 1357 that is in the middle of the hundred years war so there are many more conflicts to be had i'm sure after that you know everyone else returns back to the present day so maybe it was always part of history um and again this is one of those things that could be cleaned up if they ever revisited this book somewhere down the road for a streaming service yeah chicken or the egg which which came first whichever one is smoking that's the answer <laughs> oh that's a good one all right drew before we go please let our listeners know where they can find the attitude era review podcast well you can find the attitude era wrestling review podcast on all your podcasting platforms where me and my co-host arnold go through the attitude era of WWF and WCW weekly shows and pay-per-views. And we talk about it all review, everything starting from 96. We're just about to end 1997 soon. I think. Yeah. Just about, we're almost in November of 97. We just did Montreal screw job. Um, got done with that. We're moving on, but you can, like I said, on all podcasting pot platforms and we, you can reach us out on, well, I want to say Twitter whenever, I mean, but it probably won't be there very much longer because I'm not paying for it. Um, behind the curtain, that's when we're recording day when that news broke, but, um, we're also on, I guess, threads, uh, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, um, all under 
Um, you can just search for Attitude Era Wrestling Review and you'll find us. Now, Drew, you know you've always got an open open invitation to come back here anytime at all, especially when we start talking about Boondock Saints. And We to- will be doing Boondock Saints because I my blood pressure is still a little up from that all right me angry well don't don't get your billy Connolly costume on for that one we'll just we'll we'll tackle that one and we'll defend that one until the cows come home now to you our listeners you guys know the drill if you there's a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or you think is so bad that there is no way in any era that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. And while you're there, check out our coming soon page so you can see some of the movies that we're preparing to talk about. Got put Boonock seats on there eventually. And make sure you check out our other shows. There can only be one as well as our Keep Watch Pass episodes and Grading on a Curve specials. Until next time, Drew, thank you so much. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is... It's not that bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.